Our text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, continuing our study in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. Hear now God's holy word. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible, immense love that has been poured on us at the cross, that's been demonstrated to us through the obedience and sacrifice of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, give us your Holy Spirit more and more every day so that we might demonstrate the same love to each other, to the world, to our neighbor, to those who are lost and so far from this love that you have showed us. Father, strengthen us with this reading of your word and this study in your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. My great uncle Joe, my beloved great uncle, my favorite great uncle Joe, uh, who lived in Ohio, who passed away just a couple of years ago, was intensely interested in how you came to his house, what roads you took, and how you were going to leave, and what roads you were going to take back home. And this, of course, most predominantly in the days before GPS, before GPS erased my mental map of the world, and maybe yours as well. When I show up at an a older relative's house, it, and Uncle Joe would do this too, he'd say, how'd you get here? And I'd say, I, I followed the GPS. I, I don't know. he said, well, did you, did you take 159? You know, you just, it, and I, I, don't, I don't know. I just followed, told me to turn, and I turned. And he was not, uh, he was incredulous at, at, at that somebody would follow a computer to get to where they were going. So he was heavily invested in giving you the perfect route back to your house once you were leaving. And so before you could say your final goodbyes, he had to sit down at the kitchen table with the Rand McNally nap and and pull it out and start telling you how you were going to go home. Of course, he wasn't writing anything down. He expected you to remember all this. And and I wasn't writing anything down either. I suppose you're supposed to keep all these details straight. You know, take this road about three and two quarters of a mile, you know, three, three and three quarters of a mile down the road. And there'll be an old fallen down corn crib on the right. And there's a road that cuts across at an angle. 
don't turn there. You know, it's like, well, wait a minute, it's all these extra details. Go down to where that old gas station used to be. You know the gas station we used to go to. It's torn down now, but you know the way that is. Now turn left there. These, these details, but that's what he loved. He was the authority on the best way to go. And you better go that way because the next time he talks to you, he's going to say, did you go how I told you? And you've got to say yes, even though you have no idea how you got home. He had an impeccable knowledge of the most excellent way to go. And I thought of him this week, and that's why I bring him up. At the end of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul reminded me of Uncle Joe when Paul says, I show you a more excellent way. I, I've got the route for you. I've got the way to go. Because the Corinthians have been wandering, mapless, without, without a sense of direction, no clear idea of who they were or where they were going, where they came from. And so to the outside observer, they were going the way of the pagans. It looked like they were following the roadmap of the heathens, looking just like them in every possible dimension. But here in chapter 13, Paul is about to sit down at the kitchen table with the Corinthians and pull out the map and invite them to think about which way they're headed and the disaster that awaits them if they keep going the way they're going. He shows them a more excellent way. He maps them a route, and that route, that way, is the way of love. This chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians may be the most well-known chapter in all of the New Testament uh, because it's the one that gets read at weddings and you read these phrases and even pagans who've been to a few Christian weddings know the phrases here. They know and they've heard 1 Corinthians 13. But it's important for us to realize that this isn't just a nice little love poem that we can pull out of the text and pull out of the context of the rest of 1 Corinthians. It, doesn't, it wasn't written just to stand by itself. This is the climax of everything that Paul has written up to this point about the way that these Corinthians are running over each other, how they're pushing past each other in their various behaviors, their lawsuits, their fornication, their adultery, their sectarianism, their abuse of the Lord's Supper, their competition, these are all symptoms of a disease, and that disease is a lack of love. They do not love each other, and it's evident in the way that they treat each other. And so in the lines preceding chapter 13, he's been correcting their views of spiritual gifts. He's showing how the body of Christ is equipped with diverse talents and abilities and callings all designed to work together, not, all, not, not to stratify the body of Christ, not to divide the church, but that the only way that the body is going to function is when all the parts are acting in love toward each other. So the apostle sets out here to give them this articulate, beautiful definition of love. And he's not talking about the kind of love that you get in most movies or uh, uh, novels or country songs or pop songs for that matter. We tend to think of love, if, if we were to try to internally define love, we tend to think of it as, a, as an emotion, as a feeling primarily. I feel love for this thing or for this person. But the Bible uses the word love primarily as a way of living, an orientation that turns affection away from ourselves and to direct that affection toward other people. We, we are all amazing lovers. We are all incredible lovers. We're, we're all Don Juans. We're all Ryan Reynolds. You know, we're, we're all loves. None of us have a problem loving, but the person we love most is ourselves. 
And the direction that we exercise and focus our love is selfward. We are master lovers when it comes to securing our own comforts, when it comes to securing our own delights and our own peace. And, and it's constantly being culturally reinforced. The, the, the solution to every problem is you need to love yourself more. That's the solution. That's the message of just about every children's television program and movie. That's the, that's the message of every self-help book. In the end, you need to love yourself more. When the fact is, we don't have any problem loving ourselves. We love ourselves a whole lot. Where we fail is in directing that love outwards, to, to direct that love toward somebody else. And I suppose this is the, the point in the study where I need to spend time talking about the various words used for love in the Bible and that the word here is agape and uh, the Greek word is agape and define what that means to the people who first read these words. But I think you've heard all that before and I think far more interesting to me than that is the fact that this word agape, this word that Paul uses, was not really in common use in the Greek written language before the New Testament. It wasn't really in common use before Paul starts to use it. They had, they had other words for love like we do, you know, affection, adoration, care, devotion. Um, but, but this word that Paul uses shows up just a handful of times in ancient literature outside the Bible. Christians took this word and made it the characteristic word for love. This is the word that best describes the action that Jesus took on the cross. It's, it's love for those unworthy of love. It's a, it's a love that comes from the one who is love. It's, it's love lavished on others without a thought for whether they're worthy or not or can return the love that is given to them or not. Because this is a love that springs from the character of the lover, it is not a response to the attractiveness of the beloved. If it were, there would be no love, right? If, if God depended upon us to be attractive or deserving of love, then he would never show any love. But the love comes from the lover irrespective of the attractiveness of the beloved. So the person who's experienced this kind of love, this person who's been loved by God while yet an unattractive sinner, that person has been transformed by God's love and now sees other people as those for whom Jesus died. They are the objects of God's love and therefore they are, if I'm to be godly, they're the objects of my love. That's the love that Paul describes here, a love that was never really fully manifested or illustrated before the cross, a love that required them to essentially commandeer a little used word and freight it with new meaning. And, and that's the word that Paul uses here. So, so let's see what he writes. Verse one, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. He begins with some hypothetical situations. He's, he's not claiming necessarily to have done any of these things. So we know that he hasn't given his body to be burned. At least uh, we didn't read any of those counts and acts uh, so far to this point in his life. But what he's saying is if, if I do this or that wonderful thing, if I were to do any of things but have not love, my actions are baseless and futile. In, in the first section here, he, uh, the first few phrases, he refers back to the spiritual gifts he talked about 
that we read last Sunday, tongues, prophecy, faith. He says, if I exercise any of these gifts without love, I am nothing. All my words are just noise. It's just, it's just pageantry. It's, it's, just, it's just racket. And then he moves on to acts of mercy and sacrifice, helping the poor, dying as a martyr. And he says, if I do those without love, it profits me nothing. This is very helpful for us to think through benevolent actions taken by unbelievers, people who don't know the Lord Jesus, but people who give their money away or people uh, who do wonderful things for hurting people. And we ask, how, how can they do that? How do we figure this out? Why do they do that? Why do atheists care about feeding the hungry or housing the homeless? If this is an evolutionary world running on the law of survival of the fittest, then, then, then why, why are they doing that? All they're doing is helping their competition. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. So we wonder, look at the, look at the good that they're doing. God, God surely wouldn't judge them, right? Uh, who, God wouldn't judge anybody who feeds the hungry. But what Paul is saying here is that it really is possible to do all kinds of fantastic, extraordinary things without love. It, it is. It is really possible. You can do a lot of great things. You can put on a good show and do all kinds of philanthropic deeds without love being the motivation, and none of it is going to save you. You, you, you can do whatever and none of, it, none of it is going to outweigh the penalty of your sins. You, you may be doing it to promote yourself, to get attention. Maybe you're doing it to, to put a little salve on your, on your guilt to help you sleep at night. Maybe it's to distract others from all the terrible things that you're doing that they don't know about. Maybe it's to cover up the blackness of your heart. It's, it's kind of a fig leaf approach to life. You're trying to cover up your guilt. There could be a thousand other reasons, a thousand motiv- motivations besides love, but love, as Paul describes it here, is a gift of the Holy Spirit, which means only those who belong to the Lord Jesus, only those who have been called by the Father, who are indwelled by the Spirit, only they can exhibit the spiritual gift of love. The Corinthians are not used to thinking this way. They're used to thinking that the people who possess certain gifts and people who do certain magnanimous things, those are the extremely important people. And the flashier or the more public their display, the more important they are. And Paul counters that here. He says, even if you have the highest of gifts, even if you do the most extraordinary thing in human history, but lack love, not only are you not important, not only is your, is your deed worthless, but, but it, it, profits, it profits nothing. It profits absolutely nothing. So let's consider these uh, next few phrases, um, and we'll look at each one in turn. Verse 4, uh, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there's knowledge, it will vanish away. I read a hair to where I wanted to stop. I wanted to stop at verse 7. Let's look at, let's look at just those phrases between verse 4 and verse 7. Love suffers long. Love is long-suffering. Love is patient. It's forbearing. Love is slow to repay offenses. 
God demonstrates this kind of love for us when he doesn't immediately punish those who offend him. God doesn't immediately strike down everyone who offends him every day. God's patience slows the judgment process way down and he opens the way for escape from punishment altogether. We are far less patient than our God is. We wish that he would bust into the room and knock some heads together. But we, we see how he, he put up with Israel's nonsense for generation after generation in the Old Testament. How long he gave them to repent. How gladly he received them when they did repent and they were restored. There, there's a difference between patience and indifference. And we have to know that difference between patience and indifference. Because the patient man is often accused of being an indifferent man. Patience bears with an offense, but indifference ignores it altogether. So when, when someone is doing something that is harmful or destructive to themselves or to other people, it must not be overlooked. But love and wisdom require that the degree of the offense and the spiritual condition and maturity of the offender be considered when addressing it. Paul loved the Corinthians. He knew many of them like his own children. And they were children. They were just like children who didn't understand what they were doing. They didn't understand the scope of their problems. And Paul patiently bears with them, slowly and carefully bringing them along, edifying them and, and encouraging them and, and pointing them to, to live lives that honor the Lord. This is, uh, as I've said before, 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians. There was a previous letter that we don't have preserved for us. This is one of three, one of three letters that, that Paul wrote to them. We don't, we don't have the first one. We have the last two, and we have a record of his skill and care in addressing their needs. Love is patient. Love is kind. Kind is not a synonym of nice. Uh, I, I like to point out often that nice is not in the Bible. That's not a biblical word. There's no, there's no word nice in the Bible. Love isn't nice in the sense that love isn't saccharine. Love isn't flattering. Love must be oftentimes very firm and very forthright. But love also knows when to be gentle. Love is considerate. Love takes into account the frame of others. Love is, love is tender. Love is warm. And even when love corrects or admonishes, it is done in such a way that the one who is being rebuked cannot say he is not loved. He is still loved in spite of the admonishment. Love is kind. Love, is, love does not envy Love isn't displeased at the success of others. Love doesn't see everything as a competition. Love doesn't parade itself, promote itself. Love is not puffed up. Love isn't self-focused or self-absorbed. Love focuses on others, on promoting others, on being absorbed with others. It, it turns us. Love turns us from the inside to the outside. Love puts to death our vanity and our insubordination and our arrogance. Love does not envy. Love does not behave rudely. Now the definition of rude changes from culture to culture. It, it changes sometimes from region to region. But at the very heart of rudeness is a disregard for accepted social graces that others have adopted. And, and when a person doesn't concern himself with the comfort of others, he shows a disrespect 
for them. Now, now, love doesn't mean go along with the crowd. That's, that's not what love means. Love, love doesn't mean whatever is acceptable socially, love demands that we do that. Because sometimes the social customs of a crowd may contradict the Bible, and it's not loving to go along with those with those customs. In fact, it's loving to break those customs if those, those customs clearly violate God's word. But love is never needlessly offensive. Love does not act like other people don't matter. In short, love can read the room. Love can tell when I'm making you needlessly uncomfortable. Love can tell when uh, I'm going on and on and on and on about myself and I haven't taken a breath and uh, you, you know, uh, obviously, you know, like, are, do you, are you even in the room? Are you, are you even here, right? Love, love, can, love can sense um, uh, what it's doing and, and how it's presenting itself. Love does not seek its own, Paul says. Love's primary motivator is not how will this or that benefit me? How will this make me richer, more popular, give me power or influence? But, but how will my decisions and behaviors bless other people? Love is not provoked. Love isn't easily angered. There are times where righteous anger is appropriate, but love isn't easily aggravated. Love isn't easily irritated. You don't have to walk on eggshells around love. You don't have to worry about some, something you say or do is going to set off a, 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 a rage. That, 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 uh, that this thing is okay today, but it's not okay tomorrow. Love, love is not easily provoked. You can feel safe and at home around love. You can, you can trust love. Love has a sense of proportion that this thing is important, but this other thing really isn't. Love thinks no evil, Paul says. We, we're bad news junkies. We're not just news junkies. We're bad news junkies. We always want to hear the bad news and believe the worst. We really delight in sharing juicy bits of terrible news. We, we like being the first one to say, have you heard? Oh, you haven't. Well, let me tell you to be the first one to share bad news. But, but love rejects that sort of thing. Love avoids it. Love, love doesn't listen to gossip. Love doesn't give a minute to gripers and complainers and whiners. Love always wants to know the whole story. Love gives the judgment of charity and doesn't give an audience to the talebearer. Love doesn't have any patience for evil and it doesn't take pleasure in the misfortunes of others. Love doesn't rejoice, he says. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Uh, those who possess this kind of love don't enjoy seeing their brothers or sisters stumble into evil. They, they rejoice when they see them live according to God's word. Sin, sin destroys lives. And so to delight in somebody's downfall, to delight in somebody's destruction, or to, to, to want to see them mess up or, or to fail or, or to mock their stumbling is to rejoice in the thing that, that is their destruction. But, but love always, uh, love, love rejoices in the truth. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Love always wants the truth to be heard. Love doesn't ever want to be caught repeating a half-truth. Love bears all things. This verb bear could also be translated cover. Love, love conceals what is displeasing in another and doesn't work to drag it out into the pitiless light of public scrutiny. Love, love knows when to conceal things that are shameful or embarrassing. Love believes all things. Not that love's gullible. Love isn't gullible. But love gives the benefit of the doubt. Love doesn't harbor suspicion and contempt toward others. Love trusts the good intentions of others as much as possible. Love hopes all things. 
In order to love someone, we have to maintain an optimism on that person's behalf. Hope is an attitude that good will eventually come to those who may be failing right now, but eventually God will bring them along and the sanctification, the process will work out. And I hope that this will have a good outcome. Love refuses to stop hoping and stop waiting for the repentance of a sinner. Love doesn't give up. Love trusts that the Lord Jesus Christ will preserve his people to glory and that his people will be conformed to his image. So, so love demands that we love people through every step of their sanctification and, and trust that the Lord is working in them and tr- trust that re- he really is doing this. Love endures all things. It's easy to love people who never mess up. It's easy to love people who never offend you. It's easy to love people who never inconvenience you. But I don't know any of those people. I don't know any of them. I do know a lot of sinners, of which I am one. So I rely on the endurance and the perseverance of others in their love, and I must show it myself. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs or or, or a meticulous spreadsheet of offenses. Love enduringly offers forgiveness time and time again. It bears all things, it hopes all things, it believes all things, it endures all things. Uh, Some of you quite possibly are saying, I'm really good he said a few of those things because there's somebody I know who needs to hear them. And I (laughs) I want you to stop right now because I'm not talking about that other person, I'm talking to you. Everything is for you. It's not for that other person that you just thought, wow, they really need to hear that. It's for you. This is God's word for you that if you are indwelled with his Holy Spirit, and I believe you are, as his child, as his son, as his daughter, you are. And this is his working out in you the gospel toward the people around you, that this is the love that he wants you to reflect and manifest. This is the love that's been demonstrated to us and which we must, if we are to be pleasing to God, we must reflect to each other. Verse 8, love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there's knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Love's not going to fail, but because love is a gift of God's Holy Spirit. It's something that in, in its fullest expression can only be exhibited by those who belong to the one who is love. And as a gift of the Holy Spirit, as this kind of gift, it's, it's going to endure throughout all ages, beyond our deaths, beyond the resurrection, and into eternity. Love will never go away. That is a certainty. But there are certain gifts, certain special manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power that do go away. Prophecies, tongues, special knowledge, he lists. He, Paul says they're going to cease. And as we, as we saw last week, within a couple of generations, no one could even remember what some of these gifts looked like and what they were. So they, they ceased. Now, there are a few different interpretations of what he meant by when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away. What, what is that perfect thing that he's talking about? One understanding is that he might be referring to the day when God's word is completed and all the books of the Bible are canonized and, and there will be one authoritative, uh, authoritative collection of scriptures that will be recognized as the word of God. Remember, perfect means complete. So, so maybe you say, well, when we've, got, when we've got all this put together, when we've got the Bible complete, we won't need uh, tongues and prophecies as such to confirm uh, the, the, the witness of the gospel. We'll have this, this text that we can refer to. Another possibility is he's, he's looking forward to the, 
more full realization of the new heavens and the new earth as the church goes out and does her work successfully, when that is the perfect thing, and when that work is completed, then, then these things will cease. Well, whatever that perfect thing he's looking forward to is, what is clear is that the things that the Corinthians are priding themselves in, the things that they're focusing on are incomplete, imperfect, and are going to pass away. But love endures and is not going to fail and it's not going to pass away. You're not going to outgrow love. You're never going to be more mature than our duty to love. So it stands a reason that they focus on this thing which is everlasting and not on those things which are temporary. So he gives a couple of illustrations. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man... I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Two, two pictures here. The first image is of a child growing into maturity. When you, when, you, when you grow up, you stop acting like a child. You stop needing the trappings of childhood. There are things that God provided his people in their infancy along the way to help them grow up to maturity. The, the ceremonial laws, the dietary laws, in the early days of the church we had the, the miraculous manifestations that helped affirm uh, and confirm the gospel. He says now it's time to get into the grown-up stuff, the real spiritual and emotional and intellectual maturity. Give me the things that are going to last way into the future, through the tribulation that is to come, into the new heavens and into the new earth, and all the way through all the ages of the church, through the resurrection and on to the other side. Give me the things that are going to last. Give me love and help me let go of the things that are only for childhood. The second illustration is that of a mirror. Mirrors in the ancient world were usually made out of some highly polished metal. So uh, they didn't have the kind of glass mirrors that we do today. A mirror was brass typically or, or some highly polished um, other, other metal. So the image, if you can imagine trying to get ready in the morning and look into a brass mirror, that image is not going to be uh, perfect. It's not going to be a perfect representation or reflection. That's why he says we, when we look into a mirror, it's, it's, it's a dim reflection. We look in dimly. And even today, when you look in a mirror, everything's you know, left to right, swip, swapped around, and um, everything's backwards. And that's what, that's what he says. Paul says, this is what the present time is like. You can, you can see something of God's plan something of what's going on, like looking in a mirror, something of what God wants, but in the world to come, and perhaps he's speaking of eternity here, or he's talking about the, the future world of the church's growth and maturity, but, but as we grow and as we're brought to sanctification and maturity, everything will be made plain. You will know the Lord as well as he knows you. So these gifts that help the church through the mist of the first century, looking into a mirror dimly, um, uh, pass. But just as Jesus built his church and she matures and grows, she's been given even better gifts to help her grow, which are these, faith, hope, and love. Verse 13, and now abide, faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. These three words, faith, hope, love, appear together 10 times in the New Testament. These are the big three gifts of the Spirit. They're preeminent. They have no rivals. Faith, of course, is trust in the Lord and our commitment to Him. Faith means obedience. It's a gift of the Spirit that will last throughout all ages. So, so that faith is a gift of the Spirit means that I didn't do anything. I didn't merit anything uh, to, to receive God's uh, love, to to merit his salvation, uh, to, to earn my way into his fellowship. The fact that faith itself is a gift of the Holy Spirit means that he has reached down and he has turned my heart toward him, that he has, he has transformed me and, and begun the process of, of work in my life. 
uh, that, that I didn't call on him, he came and changed me. That's, that's what we're saying when we say faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. He also says hope is a gift of the Spirit. It may seem odd to have hope on this list, but, but Romans 15 says God is the God of hope. Without this understanding that God is writing history and that there's a bright future ahead of us, without, without this hopeful view of what God is working out, what, what's, what's the point of living? What is the point of doing anything if all we're here to do is breathe in and breathe out and eat and drink and procreate until we die? What is, what, what, what is the point of all that? What separates us from the animals? Well, hope is what separates us. Hope is a gift of the Spirit that eagerly points to the future and the promises that God is fulfilling in history. Is, is there really any abiding hope apart from the Spirit? So that's, that's why it's a gift of the Spirit. And then, and then, of course, lastly, the final word of this chapter is the greatest gift, love. Love is to define everything in our lives. Love must be the foundation of everything we do. Love is the first evidence of our salvation. John, the apostle, says, Whoever does not love his brother does not know God, for God is love. Love is the foundation of Christian character. We are rooted and grounded in love. Love is the evidence of our faith. As Paul says in Romans, he says, faith works through love. Love is the cement that binds the church together and makes it strong. Love is our protection in spiritual warfare. We put on the breastplate of love. And in another place, we're told that love is the fulfillment of God's law. Love is the sum of all of our duties. We can't put too high a premium or priority on love. We don't struggle with competing spiritual gifts in the same way that the Corinthians did, but we do evaluate some things as being more important than love. Some of us would rather have knowledge or really good debate skills or, or some would rather have status or wealth or influence and some of us would just like to be left alone to do what we want to do. Uh, all of these things that, that, we, that we desire, we, we want these things more than we want to be known for our love. If I were to ask you, what do you want to be known for above all things? What is your highest hope? Would you say, you know what, I really want to be known for my love. When I die, I want people to comment on the fact that, man, you know what I miss most about that person is the way they loved everybody. That's what I miss the most. I miss the love they demonstrated. That, however, is, is what Paul is driving at. But love, love is not a technique. Love is not a lever that we use to make the world into a more comfortable place for us. Love is not, not, love is not something we use to manipulate people. There aren't, there aren't five easy ways, five steps to becoming a loving person in the Bible. Love is the humility that comes from a profound sense of our own sin, our own guilt and our own unworthiness, knowing the love that has been expressed toward us and then turning that love in humility toward other people. Love is the gratitude for the great salvation that we have been given freely. Love is a fervent devotion to God, and it's a hunger to live like Jesus. Love is the evidence that the Holy Spirit abides in us, and that we're no longer drawn inward, focused on ourselves, but turned outward toward the people God has placed around us with a deep, abiding well of affection for them. So the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, transforms us from critic to lover. Nothing is more attractive than a lover of good things. Have you ever met someone that is just really passionate about, I don't know, what, what is it? Uh, guitar, uh, wine, 
you know, somebody who's really passionate about a, a great film or a great novel or, or a great work of art, somebody who's, who's super passionate about this thing that they've, they've mastered and they love, nothing is more attractive than a lover of, of good things. It's infectious. So, so God's people love God's good creation. We don't, we don't hate it. We don't shrink back from it. God's people love their neighbors, brother, sister, spouse. We don't, we don't view them as instruments of our own happiness. That if, if they would just fix themselves, if they would just get right, then I could be happy. Then I could be fixed. No, uh, th- th- this kind of love is demonstrated irrespective of the worth or the attractiveness of the one receiving it. So love builds character over time. It's transformative. Uh, It it grows us up. Love strengthens and edifies us. Without this, everything, Paul says, everything is meaningless and worthless. So in response to this call of love, it seems necessary for us daily, and by daily, I mean a thousand times a day, to stop and, and run a diagnostic and say, why am I doing this thing? Why am I demanding this thing? Why do I want this thing? Why am I saying this? Why am I going to this place? Why am I, why am I, why am I doing this thing? Is it out of love? Is it in love? Or is it irrespective of love? Does, does love play into this at all? And if the answer is no, then it's not of the Holy Spirit. And we can't expect any blessing or any, any good thing to come out of it. Paul says, it's nothing. It is worthless. And so as we submit more and more to the Holy Spirit, we learn to be lovers, not of ourselves. We got that worked out. Lovers of others and of the people God has put around us and lovers of God himself. Let's pray. Father, strengthen us, we pray, in this gift of the Spirit. Uh, Father, these are words that are easy to say but hard to submit to. Father, uh, help us by your Spirit. uh, Strengthen each other in in love to, to pour out of us in such a way that we are enraptured with the love of the people you've put in our lives, love for your church, love for our neighbors, love for the world that you so loved that you gave your only son for it. Father, strengthen us in every way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.